0: It's been kind of a sad, bittersweet week in the music industry, starting with with the loss of Chick Corea. Chick passed away, and I believe a day or two later, Rupert Neve passed away. Um, one of those names you might be familiar with, the other one you might not be. And this is not going to be a eulogy. This is not going to be a tribute uh, to either one of those gentlemen in particular. Uh, just because I didn't know them, and I don't uh, I, I want to just kind of touch on that and touch on their contributions. But there's actually a different direction that I that I want to go tonight. It's also been kind of a funny week in that Janet Jackson's control album, which first hit the billboard charts in February of 1986, went all the way back to the top of the Apple charts this week. And there's there's so many stories about control, and uh, at some point I might do a, a special podcast just on that record. But if you haven't been paying attention to the news uh, this past uh, the past couple of weeks, there's been a Britney Spears uh, documentary that has been uh, growing in popularity, and as a result of that, Justin Timberlake had some apologizing to do. And uh, Janet Jackson was the recipient of one of those apologies. And her fans really came out in force and uh, have been repurchasing control, sort of as a nod of of gratitude and uh, support to her. So it's pretty cool. But we are going to talk about uh, Mr. Neve in particular in in just a couple moments. Uh, And again, this is not going to be a eulogy. I just want you to hang out with me here in the studio, the podcast. So for a lot of uh, music fans, uh, the name Chick Korea is, is certainly iconic. I never had the opportunity to work with Chick Korea. My, my dear friend Brian Vibberts did a lot of projects with, with Chick so we might uh, we might explore uh chick's career on a future episode that's not where where I'm going today, but I certainly send uh uh condolences to his uh to his friends and family and and those that knew and loved him likewise Rupert Neve is probably not a household name to a lot of you if you are involved in the music industry on a professional level then you probably have heard the name Neve. But if you're just, I don't mean just in a negative way, but if uh, your connection to the music industry is a bit more just loving music, then the name Neve probably doesn't carry quite the amount of uh, significance that it does to to people that hang out in recording studios. So I was thinking about that a little bit. Um, I've actually been thinking about it for a couple days and i started i started thinking about when you're in recording studios there's there's sometimes a lingo and i i don't even like that word cuz it it's just sounds so you know it's almost like a like a 50s soda shop kind of word but but there are terms and uh, and expressions that that we used especially in studios in the 80s and 90s that i i think are interesting And I think, at least I hope, you might find a little bit interesting. So, let me give you an example. Um, Rupert Neve was passed away at the age of ninety-three. The name Neve in the recording industry is sort of uh, synonymous with quality, with workmanship. Mr. Neve and, and I'm not I'm not going to read through his whole history and, and all the uh, amazing things that he's done, but Mr. Neve uh, built recording consoles and microphone preamps and compressors and uh, things that made studios sound better. So. It got to the point, he he had so many consoles, uh, the Neve Corporation had made consoles for decades, and if you go back and listen to uh, Zeppelin albums and Pink Floyd and and, uh, different projects out of the 70s and 80s, chances are something that you're listening to went through some sort of a Neve module or a, a Neve console. And so it got to the point where, when you were working in studios, and again I'm, I'm dating myself just a little bit, but to go back to the you know the '80s and '90s in particular, if you were going to go to a new con- a new studio, uh, try a different place. Typically, one of the first questions out of an engineer is, "What kind of console do you have?" And you you make a judgment call at that point. At that time, uh, there were consoles made by companies like API and Trident and Harrison and Neve. And Neve, I don't want to say that Neve was better than all the others, but you kind of had your favorite. A Neve had a certain sound. Uh, Sometimes it's described as a warm, clean sound. Trident has a sound. Uh, Harrison has a sound. To you Michael Jackson fans out there, Bruce Swedeen recorded a lot of his projects like Off the Wall, Thriller, Bad, and even parts of Dangerous on on Harrison consoles. And Harrison held its own, but it didn't quite have the same luster as Neve. So I started I started thinking about this and when you would call a studio, or we, we used to have we used to have actual studio books um, that would kind of, you know, tell you what studios were available in town, and if it was a Neve room, that that kind of had its own, kind of carried its own weight to a certain extent, meaning that they spent a lot of money on the console, they probably had a, a, an a, an advanced uh, team a. a a Group of techs, because when you buy a console like that, and back then it wasn 't unheard of for a studio to spend four hundred six hundred nine hundred thousand dollars on the console so it it was an investment it was a big chunk of change, and you 'd think that when you spend that much money. Um, it's going to be free, you know, it's going to be smooth sailing for the next 20 years. It's not. That That's just the beginning of the work. And then, you know, modules get dirty. Uh, uh, capacitors need to be replaced. There's all kinds of things that, that go wrong in a recording console. So even on a big, beautiful Neve, you would still need a full-time, they were called techs or a technician. In some studios, they'd have two or three or four techs uh, that would... You know, sometimes be working around the clock to keep up with the sessions. You know, in other words, if a big album is happening in the Neve room and they don't break until one in the morning every night and they're back in in the studio at 11 the next morning, the engineer is going to leave a list of, he's going to leave a note for the text to take care of. Module 17 has a crackle in it. Uh, module 42, a couple of the bus switches are noisy, and, and all these things need to be addressed and repaired, hopefully before the session starts the next day. So when you rented a Neve room, there was a certain amount of expectation that not only were you going to get a great console, but you were going to get a crew kind of behind the scenes that was going to make sure the console was sounding and acting the way that it should. So, I was just kind of kind of mulling in my head about you know Neve was so the name Neve is so synonymous with quality and and what a cool eulogy and again this is not I'm not here to uh, commemorate the passing of Mister Neve uh, simply because I, I I don't have the uh, I don't have the right to I, I didn't uh, I, I didn't I wasn't able to meet him or, or be able to have a personal friendship with him. But it's more when a name actually kind of becomes uh, synonymous with quality. How cool is that to know that your your name, something that, that your, your product actually represents, you know, this is good enough for the Rolling Stones, for Michael Jackson, for Mariah Carey. Now, an artist—and this isn't to put, you know, the Rolling Stones or Mariah Carey or Michael Jackson down— But they probably, they're not quite as aware of what the console is, maybe as much as the engineer. Now, in Michael's case, he actually did have a Neve console in his home studio in Havenhurst. We called it the Havenhurst house. And uh, he, he had a Neve console up there. I worked on it many times. So, you know, for someone like that, yeah, he might tell his friends, yeah, I've got a Neve at my house or whatever, which is cool. That means that you've got something that that has a lot of value to it. So I started thinking about some of the lingo that goes into working in recording studios. And let me give you an example. If you put me onto an oil derrick in... (laughs) which would be pretty scary, uh, put me onto an oil derrick in the Gulf of Mexico and told me to hand you some specific tool or apparatus or something. It, it probably has a name, um, and I don't know what that name might be. You know, you know Hey, Brad, hand me the, you know, the number 82. I don't know what that means. I have no idea, and I'm going to get in your way, and I'm going to get fired in about uh, two minutes because I don't belong on an oil derrick in the Gulf of Mexico but i started thinking about especially for young engineers when they first walk into a studio because i was one of them and again i'm i'm kind of talking more about established uh, world class studios not so much a little bedroom studio there's a whole there's a whole language there's a whole oh, i hate the word lingo but but there's this lingo that uh, that goes along with being in a recording studio and you do a pretty quick assessment of if somebody knows what they're doing or if they don't, by their understanding of the lingo. So let me give you an example. When you work in studios you 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 have to learn a lot of the devices, the microphones, the reverbs. It sounds kind of kind of crazy, but most of them go by some sort of number, in other words. Um, there's a company called AKG that uh, they make headphones, but but primarily they're they're known for their microphones. So AKG has has several microphones, but one of the more popular ones is called the AKG 414. And the 414 is used. In fact, I just talked to Michael Bronstein a week ago about uh, recording Barry Mandelow's vocals, and if you were paying attention, you may have heard him say that he used a 414 on the vocals. An engineer isn't gonna say, you know, I used an AKG 414 on on cardioid pattern. He's just gonna say, I need a 414. There's a whole in studios. A lot of times they have what's called a mic locker, and sometimes it's a closet, sometimes it's a few drawers, and inside that microphone locker are all these different types of microphones. And over the years, engineers start to develop an ear for what microphone sounds best on what instrument or what type of voice. So, for example, um, you might be working with an engineer who is going to be recording some drums. Maybe uh, John Robinson is coming in that day, JR. And there's not a lot of time for, you know, gee, let's have a long talk about what kind of mics, you know, to use on, on JR's kit... The engineer is usually going to, you know, he's had experience or she's had experience recording drums in the past, and so they just know that they want to use a D12 on the kick and they want to use a 57 on the snare top and they want to use uh, maybe another 57 on the snare bottom, but they want to do 421s on the toms. Oh, and they want to do a pair of... uh Oh, let's say, let's go ahead and say 414s overhead. So I just threw a lot of numbers at you, and a young engineer has to know what I just said. What What is a D12 microphone? What is a Shure SM57 microphone? <laughs> What's it look like? Where do I aim it? Um, what is a Sennheiser 421 microphone? And it's kind of funny because after you've done it for a while, these numbers just start rolling off your tongue. And and even as I say them, I can picture those mics immediately. I know what a 421 is, and I know why it looks so much different from a 441. I don't expect you to look it up or or go through all this, but it's all part of the lingo. Maybe that same engineer would say, go ahead and give me a D12 on the kick drum, and then I want you to run it through... Uh let's go ahead and run it through the DBX160. So now the engine the the assistant has a couple things he's got to do or she's gotta do. They have to set a, a D12 microphone up on the kick drum. And then they and I did this for Bruce Swedeen so many times that it was like second nature. But if you're smart, you usually carry a little pad with you and just kind of scribble down some notes because engineers are going to throw a lot of numbers at you and in a sense it's a little bit of a test just to see if you can if you can keep up so you're going to put a, a d12 on the uh, on the kick drum and then it has to go through the the mic preamp and maybe the engineer has specified a certain type of mic pre in the control room and then he asked to go through a DBX 160. well what does that mean? Well, then you're getting into compressors and we might do a whole segment on compressors at some point, but compressors are sort of like in, in the simplest terms, they're, they're kind of like having your, your hand on the volume control very quickly. So if the sound comes in too loud, you quickly turn it down a little bit. And if the sound comes in a little bit too soft, you can kind of bump it up a little bit, but a compressor does it automatically. And there's more to it than that. There's attack time and release time and ratios and a bunch more. But a lot of it just has to do with kind of leveling out the sound and maybe fattening up the sound just, just a little bit. So there's different types of compressors. There's uh DBX-160, DBX-160X. There's 1176. There's one called an LA-2A. There's a whole litany of compressors that, once again, uh, if, you're, if you're new to a studio, you kind of have to know. And, and sometimes, you know, when, I, when I'm teaching uh, young engineers a little bit, it's kind of fun just to go ahead and throw some numbers at them pretty quick and make sure that they're, they're keeping up. Now, on their own time, they can try different compressors and see how they sound differently and how one compressor uh is going to be maybe a bit smoother on vocals, and another one is gonna be a bit a bit fatter and have a bit of a, a different type of attack on on a bass guitar. But they can also be watching the engineer that they're working with and kind of start taking mental notes and uh a lot of these guys have done it for a long time, and and they know how to do it, and it makes a lot of sense to pay attention to them. So, you start you start learning the lingo when you're on sessions like this, and if you've never really been in a recording studio, if you've never been on a real session, it's very, I guess I, I would say scientific, and I'm talking more about like what's called a tracking date or a recording date, where you're recording drums, you might be recording guitar, you might be recording some sort you know, percussion. And the engineers, all these microphones sound different. And the engineer probably has a certain amount of experience about what microphone is going to sound best for each application. So if you're setting up, you know, a guitar, let's say an acoustic guitar, and the engineer might say, you know, hey, you know, what do you like on acoustic? And in a sense, that's kind of his way of letting the assistant engineer, you know, kind of contribute a little bit. And at that point, you know, he might say, you know, gee, I saw this one engineer use, um, you know, Neumann U89 on acoustic guitar. And uh, and they might say, you know what, let's try it. And And it's kind of good for everybody to try a different kind of microphone. And just see if it works. And if it doesn't, it takes all of about 90 seconds to change it out. So if there's if there's a point to all this, it's that if you're going to spend time in studios, it's, it's good to learn the, l- the lingo and start knowing the difference between a 414 and a U87 and a U89. And then it kind of even goes a, a little bit further where there's certain artists that will maybe remember the type of microphone that they like on their voice which is actually really helpful so for example michael jackson i recorded michael with with bruce and bill bettrell and matt forger and and me countless times and bruce Swedien was kind of the one that discovered that michael's voice sounds really good on a microphone called an sm7 now, it's kind of funny, the SM7, it's not a terribly expensive mic. In fact, in 2021 right now, I don't have it in front of me, but I think you can buy an SM7 for about $400, something like that, which in pro audio world is actually pretty reasonable. The SM7, it's it's kind of, uh, it's a bit of a radio station mic, it's a bit of a podcaster's mic. Because it it sounds good and it's not terribly expensive, and it makes a lot of voices sound nice. I think it was originally designed as a broadcast mic for radio stations, but but it kind of crossed over and and went more into studios as well. It's kind of a rock and roll mic. It's a mic that might be used for you know a, a singer that that's really belting it out. Um, you know a strong, you know likely a strong male voice. And for Michael, it was the perfect mic. Now, for a different type of song, more of a ballad, um, then Bruce might reach for more of of like a Telefunken uh, 251 or a, a U47 uh, made by Neumann. And now you're starting to spend some money to get a Telefunken 251. I don't think those have been made, I'm going to say, for 40 years so the originals just increase in value every year so to get a 251 i'm gonna guess on the market today they're probably around fifteen thousand dollars something like that so that's that's why there's a lot more sm7s out there than there are uh tele 251s and when you're working with something like a, a tele 251 you don't want to drop it. That That is not the mic that you want to uh, have slip through your fingers and, and hit the floor because you could lose your job or you could owe the studio a lot of money. There's a lot of forethought that goes into these mics and knowing, you know, which mic is going to work best in which application. So Michael might, uh, when, when he was with us, um, I'm sure he knew what an SM7 was. He may not... And and artists are funny. They they like hearing themselves on a mic. Um, and a lot of them, they know how their voice should sound. So they're not afraid to spend some time with an engineer trying different mics. In fact, it's fairly common for an engineer to set up three or four microphones if he or she is going to work with a new artist for the first time. So they might have a 251 and a U87 and a 414 maybe even an SM7, they kind of line them up, you know, in this row and then let the singer sing. And then in the control room, they can hear what these different mics sound like and decide which mic is going to be the best fit for this singer and this type of song. So after that, the young engineer has to learn all these different microphones and then there's a whole there's a whole method to uh setting a mic up properly and how to aim a microphone and a polar patterns, uh which means what side of the microphone the sound is best picked up on. And we won't go into all that right now, because that's not really applicable to this, but it's more having a, a both a knowledge and a comfort level when somebody says, you know, hey, go grab a pair of four fourteens and put them on the piano in an XY pattern. If you've never been in a recording studio, that probably sounds completely foreign to you. But to people that have been in the business for a little while, they probably picture exactly what I'm talking about as soon as I say it. So the whole thing kind of relates back to Neve just a little bit because his his name is so synonymous with With doing it right and knowing knowing what what is behind that name, back in the control room, then there's other devices that as soon as you say the name, and again I'm I'm dating myself just a little bit because this is maybe a bit more applicable in the 80s and 90s, but there's devices that really just go by a couple numbers. And the engineer and, and the people that are working on the tech side of it know exactly what needs to be done. So, for example, if an engineer says, hey, do you guys have an EMT-250? What he or she is kind of asking is, I need a reverb unit that is capable of putting out just big, lush reverb that is is easily controllable but not with a bunch of, like, crazy effects mixed into it. It's just a big, fat reverb. And if you listen to a song like Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror, uh, if you listen to that choir, that beautiful Andre Crouch choir, as they're singing, that's going through an EMT-250. So Bruce could just look at me and say, you know, Brad, hook up an EMT-250 and set it for 4.5 seconds. Well, what that means is... Hook up an EMT-250, which is, it looks like R2-D2. We used to call it R2-D2. It was this giant, amazingly heavy reverb that you would drag around on two wheels. And it stood about, I don't know, 30 inches tall and uh, kind of looked a a teeny bit like R2-D2. Not really, but it had some big knobs on the top of it. And it would create this just lush, thick reverb. And so, again, if you didn't know what a 250 was, I don't want to say it was embarrassing, but it was one of those things that, uh, over time, you just get very familiar with the terms and the lingo. So a 250, you just know what it is, and you know what the application is going to be. There was another reverb that, uh, even when I was starting out, it was probably, I don't want to say that it was dying, but it was kind of losing its popularity a little bit. And that was called an EMT-140. And that was, I think those are eight feet long and four feet tall, something like that. So most studios had those up in the attic. There wasn't something that you would usually have your hands on. It was just this enormous wooden box that had a plate in it, a metal, I think it was a piece of aluminum, and they would actually, it had a little speaker in it. And the speaker would play and it would kind of resonate that plate a little bit. And then there was a microphone on the other side. And that and that would create this kind of this old school uh, Fleetwood Mac, uh, even, you know, disco reverb. That, uh, I mean, back then it was really there wasn't a, this was before my time in studios but there wasn't a lot of digital reverb it was really you know creating reverb either with the with a room or you know a plate or a chamber the i remember the first time i saw you know i think bruce mentioned you know he wanted to to use a an EMT 140 and <laughs> i'm looking around in the rack trying to find it and little do I know, it's this gigantic box up in the attic, and uh, it was already there, and I just had to patch into it. But it was all just part of this lingo. The whole thing to me is just kind of interesting, because it I hate to say it, but it, there's just a little bit of, uh, I guess I would say, judgment in all parties concerned. If a new engineer comes into a studio, and the engineer doesn't know one microphone from another... The studio staff is definitely going to be rolling their eyes and uh, judging that person a little bit. And likewise, if a seasoned engineer comes into a studio and he or she is working with a younger assistant engineer, it's kind of expected that somebody that's young probably is not going to know all the terms and and all the lingo. And it's a good opportunity to kind of take them under your wing just a little bit and and explain to them, you know, why a U eighty seven. Sounds different than a U89, which sounds different than a 414. And go ahead and show them. And and I had the opportunity working at Westlake where we actually could pull the microphones out of the drawers uh, maybe late at night and uh, plug them in, try them, and hear for ourselves uh, why each microphone had its own sound and why compressors had their own sound. So this kind of carried all the way through the... uh, through the recording chain. I mean, you working on the microphones, and then you kind of enter in like string dates and orchestra dates, and that's a whole different uh, can of worms. Usually those are done in big scoring stages, and those guys, they handled that without any issue at all. They, they've done so many string dates that you're probably not going to find a young second engineer that's never really used professional microphones on a scoring stage. Uh, that's that's kind of a different level. But it would follow through. You you would need to know the lingo of the microphones. You'd need to know the lingo of the equalizers and the compressors and the reverbs. And then even right down to, to the monitors, which, you know, I, I use the word monitor, but I'm, I really mean like speaker. Back in the 80s and 90s, there was a speaker called the Yamaha NS10. And every studio on the planet had a pair of NS-10s, at least one pair. And there was this, this this trick, I guess I'll call it. NS-10s, it's a little two-way speaker. It's about the size of a shoebox, a little bit bigger than a shoebox. And the tweeter on it could be a little bit bright, a little bit harsh. So it was fairly common. In fact, it was kind of a... Uh, I don't know if you'd call it a fad, but it was kind of a thing for quite a while. Engineers would put a piece of Kleenex over the tweeter of an NS-10. And I can't—we used to have a a word for it. I guess it was, you know, tissue or something, you know, put some tissue on the tweeter or something— and and it was just it would kind of diffuse the high frequency just a little bit. And you really could hear a difference. And then, then it would get down to, you know, does the engineer want one piece of Kleenex or two pieces of Kleenex? On the one hand it would get it might get a little bit silly. On the other hand, it was their tool. And it was it was all part of the uh the studio lingo of uh, working, the engineer working properly with the room and working with the staff and just having, having this comfort level where at the end of the day, they are there to capture a song and make that song sound as good as possible. And the quicker that they can get that done... Uh, the more efficient they can get it done, I won't say the better, but there's advantages to that you You generally can't take you know eight weeks to record a song that uh, that doesn't fit in most people's budgets. So if the engineer can come in with a firm grasp of what he or she wants to accomplish and can convey that information to the staff and be able to say, "I want a pair of four fourteens over the drums." I want 421s on all of the toms. I want a 57 on the snare. Let's try a 421 on the kick. If they can do that and the staff gets it and gets everything uh, connected and patched properly, it just makes the session go smoother. So I'm not sure why all that came to my brain uh, thinking about the passing of Rupert Neve other than he was such a pioneer in the industry, I mean, his hands uh, created some of, you know, so many amazing audio devices through the years, and you, it would be impossible to count the number of songs and albums that have been recorded uh, using, you know, some form of Neve technology and, and sort of that quest for quality, and, and that whole thing just intrigues me, and, and as that kind of boils down to uh, a group of engineers, a group of professionals in a room that know the lingo, that know how to get the job done, uh, where it's efficient, it's fun, you're creating something that no one has ever created before, and you're using this cool little toolbox that uh, that we sometimes call a recording studio to its greatest potential. And I, I just think that's cool. So even though I never met Mr. Chick Korea, I have tremendous respect for somebody of that level of musical aptitude. And likewise, Rupert Neve, man, I have used and touched and listened to and and even uh, envied and wanted so many of, of his amazing devices and creations over the years that I just have nothing but gratitude and respect. So I wish sincere condolences and uh, blessings on, on both of their families and uh and a quick little nod of congratulations to uh, to Miss Jackson and her uh, climbing back to the top of the uh, the charts with her amazing album control. So, thank you for hanging out with me in the studio. Um, I know this one was a little bit different, but I thought it might be kind of fun to pull the curtain back just a little bit and let you let you hear about some of the professional techniques that go into making the music that that you love have a great week stay safe and thank you so much for hanging out with me in the studio in the studio the podcast is produced by maddie sunberg theme music performed by buddy Nuanez. artwork by andy healy Studio Electronics, provided by Golden Age Project, and Studio Acoustics, provided by Acoustic Sciences Corporation. My name is Brad Sunberg. Thanks so much for hanging out with us in the studio.